0: This evening, you have a worksheet, you have a little pamphlet of things in your hand, so I'd like you to take those out. Worksheet number one, worksheet number one, entitled, Because the Bible Says So. Because the Bible Says So. That's going to be our message this evening. Before we begin any study of the Word of God, we're going to ask for His Holy Spirit to lead us, and then we're going to launch into our topic for the evening, and we'll keep together as we study God's Word. So let's bow our heads quickly for a word of prayer, and then we're off. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with these dear people. Thank you for the beautiful weather that finally came about today. And as we've come into this place, Lord, please put away any distraction, any temptation, any other thing that could get in the way from understanding who you are and understanding what your Word offers for us tonight. So Lord, please guide our minds, sharpen them, And at the same time, soften our hearts if there's any resistance there. Help us to be open to whatever your word says. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Because the Bible says so. Now, I believe, as we mentioned before, we're going to be going step by step through a study of God's word. We're going to be studying things, perhaps things that you have never seen before. In fact, I'm going to make a guarantee tonight. I'm going to guarantee that there's, I don't care who you are. I don't care how biblically literate, how long you've been in a church, or whether you've been in a church at all or not. Whatever religious background you are, from 100 years of devoted faithful service to this is the first time you've ever darkened the steps of a... This is the first time you've creaked open the pages of a Bible. Whatever your level of experience is, I promise you that as we go through our meetings, we're going to learn new things to you. Maybe some new ideas and a new perspective or things completely new that you've never heard before. And you're going to see it right from God's word. That's the goal. That's the end game, is to see what the Bible actually says. But before we can do that, we need to address the issue that we're focusing on tonight. Is believing in something simply because the Bible says so logically valid? Is that a credible thing to do? We're living in the year 2013. The last Bible author to be alive was some 2,000 years ago. Why would we put our faith and trust, why do we put any credibility whatsoever into a dusty book, the authors which have been dead for centuries or even millennia at this point? How is this a logically, intellectually credible thing to do in this day and age? Why do I need a Bible? I have an iPad. See what I'm saying? Like, Why in this technological age would we go back to some relic of, oh my goodness, organized religion, old things? That's antiquitous. How can this be a logical thing to do? We're going to bite off that tonight. Now, like I said, I believe it's incredible things, important things, but in this world, it's helpful to know why you should trust anything. I don't know about you, but I'm guessing people in this room have been let down by someone or something before. Okay? For instance, at some point, you know, you had this retirement set up, and all of a sudden, a bubble bursts, money's gone. You had an investment in a property, Money's gone. Maybe you invested in a person, and that person's gone. Maybe something you set your trust in at one point seemed solid, and then all of a sudden you blinked your eyes, and it was gone like a vapor. And then we come along and say, trust God's word. You say, I've never heard God speak. I've never seen his face. Never shook his hand. If the people I can see and hear and interact with daily, let me down. How about this person I've never met in my life? Why in the world should we trust the Bible? Now, I'm going to make a simple premise, and as we follow along with our worksheet here, you're going to see that we're going to go right, just right through it. But I believe that non-believers need a good reason to believe, need any reason, in fact, to believe. They're looking for any reason to believe at all. And furthermore, people who claim to believe the Bible need a better reason to believe than they already have. Most people, most Christians would probably, if asked, say, I believe that the Bible is trustworthy because, well, and they'll give something like, well, my family always has. Or, I don't know, this is, I've always kind of gone to church or, you know, Americans are genuinely Christian, so I guess, yeah, the Bible's true some sort of nonsensical answer like that, something, or, or, or say something like, the worst of all, I believe the Bible is true because the Bible says so. Think about that statement. I believe the Bible is true because the Bible says so. Now, is that an intellectually credible position, especially a position that you're going to found the rest of your life upon? I believe the Bible is true because the Bible tells me it's true. Reminds me of a story that was told. I saw a picture of it. I don't know if it's real, but it serves our purposes tonight. There was some napkins left lying around at a restaurant, and on one of them, someone had taken a pen and scribbled these words. It said, The napkin religion is the one true religion. I know so, because it says so, right here on this napkin. Right? Because the napkin said it, It must be true because the napkin had it written down. A lot of people look at Christianity like that napkin. Are you telling me that there's a book, a literal paper and ink book that says it's the word of God and therefore, oh, it must be the word of God because it says so. People will look at the Bible like they look at that napkin and say that's just logically inconsistent. That's ridiculous. That's silly. That's old wives' tale and they let it go. So I believe non-believers need any reason to believe, and I believe that believers need a better reason to believe than many of them have at all. So, because the Bible says so, I believe is a fantastic answer to almost every question in the Christian life, except for, why should I trust the Bible? Do you understand? Do you understand? It's a great answer. Once you've established trustworthiness of Scripture, then you can build upon it. But until you've gotten there, just to hear, because the Bible says so, brother, it's like, first of all, we're not brothers, and second of all, I don't believe the Bible. It does no good. So what we want to do tonight is give a credible, logical, and I believe powerful reason for you to look at your Bible and say, this is not just another book. It's not just a good book. This is God's book, and it is trustworthy beyond everything else in life. Okay, that's our end goal tonight, is to talk about the reliability of Scripture. So let's go in our Bibles to 2 Timothy, our first text we're going to look up, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now if you have those pew Bibles out, that's going to be page 1144, 1144, 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Notice what the Bible says about itself. What does the Bible, act? does the Bible even claim to be the Word of God, or does it just claim to be a good book? Does it make that bigger claim to be actually the Word of God? Well, let's see what it says about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says here, all scripture is given by inspiration of whom? God, okay? And how much scripture is included there? All Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, or some versions say useful. You can put it to use, okay? For reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice, all, thoroughly, complete, every. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's a big claim. All Scripture is. Is given by that. Now, whether or not that claim is true, we'll get back to in a minute. But I want you to see right there in the scripture that the Bible does not just claim to be an inspiring book, it doesn't claim just to be good literature or good poetry or interesting nighttime reading or old fairy tales for, for children. It claims to be the very breathed out, inspired. In fact, that word means inspiration of God, means God breathed. And out comes his word. Now, that's a bold claim. Shakespeare never claimed that. Agatha Christie never once claimed to be the word of God. But this Bible makes a much bigger claim than any other book ever written. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let's look at our second text, 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn into the right to your Bibles. Page 1166 in your pew Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 21. Notice again, that last text was written by the Apostle Paul. Now we'll see what the Apostle Peter says about the same topic. What is the Bible? What is this thing that we're holding? It says here in verse 21, 2 Peter chapter 1, for prophecy, or those who wrote down the scriptures, never came by the will of whom? Man. Not one bit of this, apparently, did someone sit down and just decide, to, mm, I think I'm going to write a book today. Mm, let's see, let's talk about this and this and this. Or maybe I'll write a history, or maybe I'll write some wisdom proverbs, or maybe I'll write some... No, 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 no. Apparently, none of it came by someone just sitting down and writing a book. Now, I know that's the common view. Out in the secular world, out in the society today, they will say, oh, the Bible is just a bunch of writings collected by different people. Someone wrote this poetry, someone wrote this story, someone wrote these wisdom literatures, and we collected them, sewed them together in this thing we call the Bible, but it's really just a bunch of individual men. No, 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 no. Notice what it again says. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not just saying holy men wrote this book. It said they were moved by the Holy Spirit himself to make this what we have before us today. This scripture, this Bible, this word, quote, of God. That's a very, very big claim. And this brings us to our next fill in the blank. A very logical statement. The greater the claim, it's your first blank there, the greater the claim, the greater the evidence necessary to validate it. Think about that again. The greater the claim, the greater the evidence required to validate it. Now, I, would, I could tell you, in fact, I'll tell you right now. I am a 36-year-old. No one in the room gasped, by the way. No one said, oh, no. You know, okay, 36 years old. I have a wife and two children. One is three, the other one is one. They happen to be the two cu- cutest children on the planet. I don't know how it worked out, but that's what we got. I also drive a mid-size or a compact silver SUV. Again, no one gasped. Right? now, if I said I also drive a bright red Lamborghini, see, you chuckled because you think that I'm not wealthy enough to have that. That's very mean of you to think that, but. Um, <laughs> You get the idea that if I made a a modest claim to be a father of two and I happen to drive a compact SUV, that's not really saying anything. And no one in this room is going to say, I defy you to prove that. At least no one has yet. Because it's a mild claim. No one's going to say, no way, an SUV, how is it possible? Sure. But if you were to be that one person, to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to call this man out on his lies. You do not own an SUV. What could I do to prove to you that I, in fact, do own an SUV? It shows, all right. Well, I could stand here right now and I can pull out of my pocket, right next to that not-the-mark-of-the-beast thing, (laughs) I could pull out a key and a key fob that had the little H for Hyundai on there. It's pretty good evidence, right? But there's, and, that, and if there was even one person, that would probably win them over. There might, might be that diehard person who says, anybody can have a key. Does it work? We'd roll our eyes. Everyone would roll their eyes at this point. But we'd stop the meetings and say, all right, let's go. We'd hike out to the, to the parking lot and I'd, you know, click the button. Lights would light up. And that would seem to be pretty much DNA evidence. But you could say, well, you could have stole, stolen that car. How do I trust that that's your car? And at this point, everybody's thinking you're ridiculous, but we continue with the thing. And I go to the glove box, I show you my ID and compare it to the, you know, the documents in there and give you basic, you can read the VIN number, you can Google the thing. I don't know what you do to find, but you can basically do DNA evidence that that vehicle belongs to me. I paid for it. These are my keys. That's my car. This is my, this is mine. But of course, that's a ridiculous even thing to go down the path of, because who in their right mind would question that a 36-year-old father of two owns an SUV? It's kind of weird if I didn't own an SUV at this point, right? Now, if we were standing out by my SUV that I proved beyond reasonable doubt was legitimately mine, and you said, all right, fine, I believe you, you own the SUV. Now, I said, good, you trust me? yes. I said, I'll let you in on another secret. You say, "What's that?" Well, I'm Superman." It's kind of like the Lamborghini thing, right? It's just ridiculous, to even think. Of. Now, what if I, what would I have to do to you? What would I have to do for you? What do I have to do in front of you? What would I have to do to demonstrate the claim that I am Superman? fly, right? What if I just unbuttoned, and you're thinking, oh my word, does he actually have a Superman shirt on underneath? I, I don't, just to so say, you know, but if I did, I pulled it back and I had the blue shirt with the, the shield with the S on it, would you be like, oh, you are Superman. Would that be enough? No, because then I'm just the crazy guy who wore the t-shirt, right? Right? That's not good enough. You'd say, uh, no. What, with the, with the Hyundai, you'd even ask for one thing, and I gave you the keys, you're like, fine, that's enough, you won me over. But with Superman, just my word for it, it's not going to cut it. The t-shirt, not going to cut it. Somebody already said it, what do you need to see? Fly, right? Then if I'm standing there in the parking lot, and I strike the Superman pose, I'm like, watch out, back up. Now somebody here is like, is he really about to fly? Is that, how creepy is this about to get, right? And I stand there, and I don't know exactly how Superman looks, but you know, something very regal and mighty. Like, I put my hand up in there. For a second, you'd be like, What does he do? Is he really going to fly? And all of a sudden, I take off and I fly. And I do some loops, and I buzz by your head, see, I'm flying, flying. And I come back and land. Right next to you. You're like, I don't know how you did that, but I still don't think you're Superman. I need you to see you do something else, right? And I say, well, have a seat in my SUV. And you get in. And while you're in there, I lift it up, spin it around on my finger. plop it right back down. Open the door for you. You're a little bit dizzy, right? But you step out. I'm like, you believe me yet? And now you're not ready to say that I'm Superman, but you're willing to say something's up. And then I do that thing where you can shoot laser beams with your eyes. Did you know Superman could do that? You know, I watch those movies. And you like saw it off a limb of the tree with my eyes. And step by step, no matter how much in your mind you thought that Superman was a comic book, Right? It was just a cartoon. It was just a figment of someone's imagination. At some point, you'd have to be like, I don't understand it. I don't know how you've done it. I don't want to end up on your bad side. But you, my friend, are Superman. Now, of course, I'm not Superman. I mean, the build gave it away. I'm not Superman. But for many people in this world, believing in a supreme being that created the universe, who can see the end from the beginning. Who can do things that no other being can do, can answer prayer, could even listen to prayer, can can think at the same time with all these billions of people, is just if not more so as crazy as there being a Superman. So when we say things like, Well, I believe the Lord cares for each one of us, there's like, I can't believe you think that there's a Lord. Oh, the Bible is the Word of God. How can you, in this day and age, be so simple and so shallow? believe that there's a God and that his word has anything to say to me today. I believe that the Lord anticipated that kind of skepticism. In fact, I believe he—how can I say this gently? I believe that he expects this kind of skepticism. You see, the Lord created us with a brain, Each one of us in here. Now, some of us might have let it atrophy for a while. Some of us might be using it all the time, day in and day out, and be sharp as a tack. But the Lord built us with brains, and he expects us to use them. But for some reason, when it comes to spiritual things, religious things, churchy things, that's the one place in this world where we come into the room and we automatically, for too many of us, Leave our brain right with our coat out on the rack in the hall, and we come in like if the song felt good, okay, that was good. I guess there is a God, you know. If the story made me cry, if it made me laugh, if there's just something, if it was (gasps) that somehow spiritual just means feeling. But what I want to demonstrate is that God cares about what you think, and He built you with a brain. He gave you a mind, and he expects you to use it. Let me give you some examples of this. Hebrews chapter 11. It's going to be page 1155. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. It defines what faith is, and while you're finding that, page 1155, Hebrews 11 verse 1. Far too many people look at the Christian walk as a leap into the dark, like, oh, I have faith in the Lord, and they believe that that simply means that there's all the things that logic and rational thinking and all kinds of normal things can, can, can handle, and faith is just that great, vast, empty nothing beyond, and you take a leap of faith into the grand canyon of foolishness, right? There's a lot of people who think that, but watch what the Scripture says about this. Hebrews chapter eleven and verse one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the what's that next word? The evidence of things that are what? Sure, there are things that you don't see, but that does not mean that they are without evidence. The Lord gave you brain and expects you to use it. If He says, "Hey, take my word for it," He gives you evidence as to why His word is trustworthy in the first place. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. Of things not seen. Let's continue with this theme. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. In the Old Testament, that's going to be page 654 in your pew Bible. 654, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Notice what the Lord says. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. It's a beautiful sound right there. All those pages turning. Isaiah chapter one and verse eighteen. Come now and let us what? What What's give me a synonym for reason? What's another synonym for reason? Think, ponder, consider, mull it over, cogitate. Right. Come now, let us reason. Together, says the Lord. And it talks about our sin problem, which we'll get into later nights. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But notice he says, this is not a blind leap into the dark. He says, Let's think about it. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's go to First Peter. And then in the right hand side of your Bible, towards the book of Revelation, towards the very end. First Peter chapter three and verse fifteen. That's going to be page eleven sixty-four in your pew Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. And notice what the apostle here writes and think of the power of what he's saying. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But sanctify, that means set apart as holy, the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's a little bit of a complicated sentence, but notice what he's saying. Yes, set the Lord apart in your heart as something sacred, something special. Honor the Lord. But beyond that, it's not just in your heart. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Apparently, whatever hope that you have as a Bible-believing Christian should be built on logic. It should make sense to someone else. And he says, look, if you're going to take the, the word of the Lord and you're going to claim to be a Christian, somebody's going to look at you and say, oh, okay, Mr. Christian, okay, Miss, Miss Holy, what about this? And they'll ask some tough question. And he says, be ready for that. People are going to be skeptical. Is the best thing that you're going to come back with is when they say, why do you believe that Jesus even exists? Why do you believe that Jesus is coming in? Why do you believe that God created the world when science clearly tells us? Why do you believe that this is right or this is wrong or that is that? And you come back with because the Bible says so. You know what their next question is going to be? Well, why should I trust the Bible at all? And too many Christians come back with, I don't know. I've, I guess my parents always, I just kind of grew up in this church, or everybody around here is a, I don't know. And right about the time you go, I don't know, is when they're like, that's exactly what I thought. You took a leap out of logic into, quote, faith. And I don't need any of that. Peter says, look, if you're going to claim word of God, be able to defend it logically, make it make sense. In fact, we see this in Acts chapter 1. Jesus himself, page 1051, 1051. Acts chapter 1, Jesus as he was ascending into heaven, which I believe he literally ascended into heaven, as the word says, but notice what it says here, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. When Jesus wanted to demonstrate that he is who he claimed to be, the resurrected Jesus they had seen die just days previous, it says here in verse, chapter 1 and verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, and again that's page 10, 5, one. to whom he also presented, that is his disciples, he, being Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible, what's the next word? Proofs. He proved it to them. He didn't just say, take my word for it. He gave them something to build their faith on. He's like, this should be reasonable. It should be logical. It should make sense. And Jesus did that very thing. In fact, let's go to the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26, page 1082. Acts chapter 26. I love this interaction. Acts chapter 26, starting with verse 24. Again, that's going to be page 1082. Paul here, the Apostle Paul, used to be a persecutor of the Christians, a disbeliever in Jesus Christ, came 180 degrees, now believes vehemently in the Lord and spends his life trying to get people to believe in him, is arrested for his faith and is put on trial before the great minds of his time. Acts chapter 26 and verse 24. Now watch this. Now as he thus made his defense, so he's making a defensible argument as to why he believes what he believes, Festus, one of the rulers there, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. <laughs> now that's, a, that's an interesting thing. You are so smart that you're out of your mind. You've read so many books that you're just lost it. You're beside yourself. You're not really thinking clearly. You're mad. You're insane. And look at Paul. Paul doesn't say, brother, I'm just in the Spirit. I'm just silly. He never says that. Watch what he says. But he said... I am not what? Now, in our common English, we think of mad as like angry, right? But what's he saying when he says, I am not mad? What's he saying? I am not what? I'm not crazy. This makes sense what I'm telling you. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. It's not only true, but it makes sense. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. He's talking about the life of Christ and the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus lived out. And he said, look, you know too much. You know that this is right. And I'm giving you truth, and it's reasonable. I'm defending my faith. I'm not out of my mind. I'm perfectly in my mind. You don't have to be out of your mind to believe in Christ. In fact, God gave us a brain and he expects us to use it. Now, there are a lot of good reasons. If you were just to pick up the Bible and say, all right, give it your best shot. Why should I believe that this book is God's inspired word? Why should I believe? Now, you could come up with many good reasons, valid reasons. I'll just give you a few just off the top of my head. First of all, the Bible was written over a course of 1,500 years. Okay? From the time of Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, till the close of the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, the last apostle to live. That time span is roughly 1,500 years. And in the space in between, you had different authors, some 40 different authors, write 66 different books, From three different languages, occupations ranging from kings to shepherds to fishermen to doctors. It wasn't a bunch of scholars. It wasn't written at one time by one guy at one place. It was written by a whole host of people. And you can, by the way, you can read the different structures. The book of Psalms is very, very different than the books of, say, Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are very, very different styles, but they they have different styles, different backgrounds, different languages, different geographies. They're situated literally hundreds, if not thousands of years apart. The message from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is perfectly consistent all the way through. And it's talking about the most controversial topic of all time, God. Now think about it. If we were to talk about, I don't know, cooking, one of the most benign topics, I don't know how many people we have in this room, a hundred or more. And if I guess, if we ask everyone, all right, you write a, write a chapter, and we're going to put a book together and see if it coheres perfectly together about something as benign as cooking. What are the best recipes? What are the most healthy recipes? What are the most this and that? We would have a big scattered mess just right here in this room about something as, as banal as cooking. What do you think would happen if we went to, like, say, politics or religion? Would we have all of a sudden perfect harmony and agreement? Oh, mercy, no. But that's exactly what the Word of God does. Forty different authors, three different languages, three different continents, 1,500 years apart, different occupations, different cultural climates, different everything. And yet there's a consistent theme right through Scripture, harmonious to the end. It's powerful. It's powerful. And, And those are some very, very good reasons um, you, you could say, well, the Bible is the most sold. By the way, you'll never find the Bible on the uh, New York Times bestseller list. Never. Do you know why? It's not because they don't recognize it as a book. I mean, it's a legitimate book. It's printed a lot. It's printed so much, so often, it beats the records every time that they would have to list it at number one every single week, all the time. So they have to make a little asterisk and say, these are all the books that are sold, the highest selling books this week, that aren't the Bible, because it just gets sold, and it's been translated in more languages, it's been sold more times, more stuff. The Bible is out there more than, it's. you could just say, the just sheer ubiquitousness of the Bible. It's just everywhere. Everybody's aware of it. It's, it's so historical. It's so, well, that's got to be a reason to believe. But just because everybody's heard of it, and even if everybody had read it, that's still not a good enough reason to say, all right, I'm going to build my life on it. Right? Is there anything outside of the Bible itself that can evidence to us that the Bible is trustworthy? Is there something inside the Bible that we can look out objectively from outside the Bible and say, aha, this thing is true? Well, I believe that there is, and I want to show you that to you tonight. Let's go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Well, before we do that, let me just tell you this we don't even have to guess what it is. Go to the book of Isaiah. We want to finish up the first side here. Isaiah chapter 42. That's going to be page 696. Isaiah chapter 42. Still in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, page 696. Going to start with verse 8. Notice what the Lord himself... If there is a Lord, quote-unquote, and this is his word, notice what he says. He throws the gauntlet down about proving his own existence. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to whom? To another. He's like, there's only me. I'm not going to share it. There's not a pantheon of gods. I'm it alone, period. And he says, why? Verse 9 behold. What's it mean to behold something, by the way? To look at it. Take a look. Check it out yourself. Behold. The former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Okay, he says, look, I am it. I'm the one and only God there. Everything else that claims to be a God is not, and I'll prove it. Now, again, a big claim, the bigger the claim, the bigger the evidence required to support it. Does that make sense? So again, if he claims to be the one true God, there better be a huge body of evidence to go along with it. Does that make sense? Okay? And he says, I'm it, and this is what I'll prove. Here's what I'll do. I will tell you the future, and you just watch and see if it happens just like I say. No human being could do that. No committee form could do it. No conspiracy theorist could come up can't do it and certainly no little rock idol or some wood sculpture thing that you think is a god or the sun the moon and the stars whatever thing you might think is a god or worship listen to me and behold for yourself i'm going to say things before they happen and you just watch in fact he makes that claim again in fact he makes it several times let's go go over two pages to the right isaiah 44 two chapters to the right isaiah 44 verses eight and nine he says, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other, I, no other rock, I know not one. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are what? Useless. All right, it might be decorative in your house. It might make you feel good, but it's real, real dumb. Okay? It's completely pathetic and useless. I'm the only true God. It's not like I'm the most God, and those are kind of God, and that's a little bit semi-God. No, 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 no. There's you guys, and then there's me. I'm God, and nothing else is. Big, big claim. In fact, he goes again. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witness. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. They don't even realize they're wrong because it's a rock (laughs) or a piece of wood or something like that, right? And how does he prove this again? Let's back up just a few verses. Verse 6. Let's go back to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no other God. And verse 7, why does he make this bold claim about himself? And who can proclaim as I do? Then he challenges, then let them declare it and set it in order before me. All right, the Lord himself lays down the gauntlet to anything else that would claim to be a God or anything else you believe in as God. Is there anything out there that claims to be divine that can do what I can do? Namely, tell you the future, set it in order, and you just sit back and watch it occur. He says, I challenge you, bring forth your best God. Who's your strongest God you've got? Who's the scariest? Who's the most popular? Who's the most whatever? He says, let him put in order all the things that are going to take place, and I'll put mine besides his, and let's see who wins. Pretty cool. Again, verse 7. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set in order before. Since I appointed the ancient peoples and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. But he says, don't be afraid, I'm the only one who can do it. Now, let's flip over. Daniel, chapter 2. Daniel is one of those most powerful books in the Bible. All the books in the Bible, I believe, are powerful and useful, as the Bible has already said, all scriptures God breathed. But this one, you know, it's one thing to say, I know the future. If I were to tell you, I know what's going to happen tomorrow, that's just a claim, But if I outlined, all right, you're going to get up at this time, you're going to go to this place, and at this point in the day, you're going to meet this person whose name is Bob, and that person will be wearing these clothes, and I started describing your day in detail before it happened, as you went through the day and you started to notice that those things were happening, you would start to think that I am someone special, right? That I'm better than just a person, that I have some inside knowledge that no other person can have right? This is what the Lord says. I'm the first and the last, and I'll prove it. Daniel chapter 2. Now, Daniel was a young man at this point. He had three famous friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken from Judah about 500 years, or Jerusalem was the city, 500 years before Jesus was born, right? This is roughly 500 years before Jesus was born. Daniel and his friends were faithful Israelites, Hebrew young men, who were raised in good homes, they were noble. Apparently, according to Scripture, they were even good-looking, they were smart, they were able-bodied, they were ready to go. And instead of the wisdom of the Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the wisdom of this king said, instead of going out and killing all the people and starting from scratch, why don't we take the best of their people and turn them into our people? right? So I want to take the smartest, most able, those well-equipped Jerusalem people and turn them into leaders of the Babylonian Realm. And so he takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into captivity to the town of Babylon, and he tries to set them up as his proteges, if you will, his apprentices. Now, we'll pick the story up here in chapter 2 and verse 1 of the book of Daniel. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to the king to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Notice who they brought in. Astrologers, magicians, soothsayers, all these diviners, these, these mystics, if you will, who apparently he had on the payroll because you could just call them and they come into to you. So they came and stood before the king. Verse 3. And the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. I want to understand this thing. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, and notice they start very polite. Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Now, think about that. It sounds so polite. You just tell us what you dreamt, and we'll tell you what it means. Well, the king is a pretty shrewd fellow. You know, I could tell you I dreamed anything, and you could come up with a meaning, right? Oh, that means that you are the greatest king ever. Oh, that's good to know. Good to know. But how do I know that that interpretation is true, that it's trustworthy, that it's accurate? How can I verify it? Well, the king thought about this. Now watch what he says here. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, uh, you shall be cut in pieces and your house shall be made an ash heap. Notice this, however, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall see from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Notice what he's doing. I'll trust your interpretation. If you can demonstrate that you have inside knowledge, you can tell me what was going on in my head. I don't want an interpretation that anybody can make up. I want to know that it's trustworthy. So I want you to demonstrate your ability. Tell me what the dream was, and then I'll trust that you can give me the accurate interpretation. Now, the, all of a sudden, the politeness moves away. Verse 7, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. Notice these guys are getting their bluff called. It's like whenever, you know, if you ever, ever talk to a psychic, and they say, just ask them, hey, what's my name? <laughs> when they can't do that, just hang up, you're done, okay? Basically, he's saying, you're not getting past square one with me. Tell me the dream, and I'll trust that you can give me the interpretation. And it goes on, they go back and forth and back and forth, and finally they refuse to give in, and the king says, that's it. Tonight, all of you die. And he orders all the wise men, all these astrologers, these mystics, soothsayers, magicians, all of them to die. Now, the problem is that Daniel and his three friends were part of that collective. They were under that umbrella of, you know, smart guys, the wise men. And so the knock came on their door. He said, good evening, Daniel. We're here to kill you. He says, slow down. What, 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 what? And he explains what happened. Then he says, look, let me go to the king. And he approaches the king. And notice what happens here. Verse 16. So Daniel went in. Again, verse 16. Daniel went and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then the Daniel went into his house and made the decision known to, and it uses their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now we'll go into verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. And then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember they tried to change his name, Daniel just kept calling himself Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And notice Daniel's humble answer. He could say, why, yes, I can. But Daniel knows he can't tell anybody what they dreamed. He has insider information. And he says to the king, verse 27, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And notice, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these he didn't say, "Now I'm going to take a guess, and I'm going to use some very vague language, and you tell me if I'm getting somewhere close. He says, king, your dream was this, and the interpretation will follow. In fact, watch what he does next. Verse 29, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. He's like, before you went to sleep that night, I'm going to tell you what we're thinking. Now, he's, he wants the interpretation, right? And he says, in order for me to trust that you can give me the interpretation, I need for you to tell me what the dream was. And Daniel says, all right, I'm ready to do that. Before, and then he offers something extra. He says, even before we get to the dream, let me tell you what we're thinking about as you were headed to bed. Which, by the way, if somebody could tell you what you were thinking about before you headed to bed and had the dream and wanted to know the you'd listen. I'm guessing he's on the edge of his seat do tell. What was I thinking? Verse 29, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. You were thinking about the future, weren't you, king? I'm guessing everybody comes in day in and day out. O king, live forever, but you realize you're not going to live forever. The question is, will my kingdom live forever? Will I have had the greatest? Will I make, what's going to happen after this? Daniel's like, that's what you were thinking about when you went to bed that night about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. Notice now, and he goes on to describe verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image, head, was made of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, you have your picture there, but I'm going to act it out just because this is how I do. But the head was made of what material? The chest and arms were made of what? The belly and thighs were made of bronze. The legs were made of? And the feet were made of iron mixed with clay. So you notice you have four basic divisions. You have the head of gold, chest and arm of silver, Belly and thighs of bronze, and then you have the legs of iron, and the iron continues into the feet, but at the end, it kind of mixes with clay. So you have gold, silver, bronze, and iron all the way to the end. Four main divisions. Okay, that's going to be important. We're laying a groundwork here. Verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces came in and scratched the whole thing. Then, verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream. So, again, gold, silver, bronze, iron, feet divided there between iron and clay, and at the end of that time, a rock cut without hands comes in, Strikes it on the feet and tumbles the whole thing into powder, into dust, to chaff that the wind blows away. And then that rock that smashed the, the image grew and became a great what? A mountain. Now notice what he says here. Verse 36 no equivocation, no hesitation, no like, I don't know, maybe. This is the dream. Period. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So he launches right into the interpretation. Verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Now, I think that's interesting. You are a great king. You're a king of kings. And the reason you're so great is because the real king has given you a kingdom. Right? It's kind of a backhanded compliment. You're great because you're allowed to be great for now. He's given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And, verse 38, And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of what? Gold. He says, You and the kingdom you represent, Babylon, you are this first empire. You are the head of gold. Notice we're talking about big picture empire language. And we know this because look at the very next verse. But after you shall rise another what? What? Notice he's not talking about another king, not just the next guy. He's talking about the whole next empire, the next kingdom. So says, after you, after Babylon, shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So now he's like, you're Babylon. Then there's going to be another kingdom. And then after that, a whole nother kingdom And finally, in verse 40, And the fourth kingdom, now we're four kingdoms away, shall be as strong as what? Iron. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. If you notice, there's also an interesting theme going on here. This starts from the most precious to the most common. From gold to silver, it goes from value less and less and less. Notice he says, Another kingdom inferior to yours. But by the time they get to iron, it's as strong as iron. For instance, if you were picking something to to sell on eBay, you'd want something from up here, right? You want gold. But if you were wanting something to fight someone in a war, you'd want something from down here, right? The guy with the shield of gold versus the sword of iron is going to lose, right? So it gets more and more expensive towards the top, but more and more, it's strengthened stronger as you get down to the bottom, Right? And finally, of course, the value plummets when it gets down to the end. It's iron mixed with clay. It's finally down to dirt. Interesting. Interesting. Now, it continues. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, what's that word? Right? It starts as iron and strong as iron, but at some point it's going to be divided. When it gets down to the time of the feet, and what does he call out? Not just the feet, but also the the toes, right, the feet and the toes. It's going to be divided in that time. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of iron shall be in it. It's still iron, it's just in a different form now, it's mixed and mingled. And as the toes, here it is, the toes again, verse 42, and as the toes of the feet, And just so you know, this will be helpful in nights to come. How many toes do people typically have? Now, I don't want to know about abnormalities. I'm just, what are the normal amount of toes that people come with standard equipment? Ten, right? Okay. That'll be helpful in nights to come. But just, it mentions toes specifically twice here. That's interesting to me. Anyway, verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. So apparently these divided kingdoms, these divided nations, these divided whatever divisions they are of this fourth kingdom, will try to unite. But iron doesn't really mix with clay. That's why it was used in the prophecy. So the kingdom shall be partly fragile and partly strong. Verse 43, and as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So these are going to be divided and will not reunite, no matter what they try to do to bring them back together. And it says in verse 44, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That one that's really going to go forever, that's going to be set up in the time of those kings. That's what the rock meant. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand, how long? Forever. Remember, they always come into, O king, live forever. But he says, your kingdom is great, but it's not forever. And the next kingdom, and the next kingdom, and the next kingdom, and it's going to be divided, and they're going to try to unite the world, but it's not going to work. But in the days of those kings... The real king will set up the one true kingdom that will live forever. Verse 45, Inasmuch as as you saw the stone was cut out with the mountain without hands, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God, not one of them, but the only one, the great God, has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. And look at the confidence. Before the king could even nod his head and say, yep, because I'm guessing at this point it's just jaws on the ground. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. He's like, think what you want, question what you will. But the dream was right on, the interpretation is sure. Have a good night's sleep. But notice what has happened here. 500 years before Jesus ever walks the earth, this King Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision from the Lord, a dream, And through Daniel, he interprets that dream and tells him from the time of Babylon all the way until Jesus sets up his final kingdom, his great mountain, the kingdom that will never be destroyed. What we have here is a very basic outline of the history of the entire world from Babylon forward. And the good thing is we're not living in the time of Babylon. That's good for so many reasons, but right we're not living in the time of Babylon to be like, man, I hope that comes true. I wonder if that's going to come true. I guess I'll die before I see if any of it come true. Of course not. And we're not living in the time of the next kingdom or the next kingdom at that or even the kingdom that's divided. We're living in the divided time because right there you can compare with Scripture and you don't even have to go. You can do outside of Scripture. Go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. I never want to urge this for a researcher, but go Google it, <laughs> okay? What was the empire that ruled after the Babylonians. It was the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians came together, like one strong arm and one weak arm to take over the Babylonians. You read about it in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 2, it hadn't happened. By the time Daniel 5 comes along, that's when a changeover happens. But after the Medes and Persians, they don't live forever. Another empire comes up, the Greeks. And there's one especially prominent king in fact, probably the only one we know of the Greeks. Alexander the what? The great, right? Expanded that territory, blew away all the Medes and Persians. Oh, Greece is now the great empire that shall never fall. Until Greece fell. To what was the next empire? Rome. Jesus and the apostles happened to live in the time of Rome. It was a Roman cross that killed Jesus. But at that time, it wasn't divided. It was the big imperial empire of Rome. But, you know, after that time, Rome got divided. Interestingly enough, into the European divisions, ten of them, that since that time have never been united into one kingdom. Now, there have been people who've tried. Charlemagne gave it a shot. Going to bring all these nations together, reunite the great Roman Empire. Hasn't happened. Napoleon, right, from France, we will recreate this great, with France, of course, being the headquarters at that point, right, (laughs) this great European, but it never happened. Maybe in some of the people's lifetimes here. Hitler gave it a shot, right? This time it wouldn't be France being the central point. Germany would be the leader, right? Didn't really pan out. Over time, they've tried to intermingle and mix, okay, this duchess will marry this duke and this king will marry this whatever, and try to unite all these family lines so you just have, you know, they don't have trees, they just have an interlocking forest of vines, you know, trying to hold this thing together. But it doesn't. Even now, let's try financially, politically, let's align this thing, let's have the European Union. But if you notice that every day, almost every single day in the news, there's one member state will almost collapse and it'll cause a domino effect. Oh, the you or the euro is gonna instability everywhere. Some countries are bailing out, some are trying to come in, they re the whole thing. It's not working. And we're living on this end of it. And we have the objectivity of completely non-religious, atheistic, if they want to, just old-fashioned history that says Babylon was followed by Medo-Persia, was followed by Greece, was followed by Rome. It was divided, and it hasn't been united since. And what's fascinating about that is if you got Babylon right, and Medo-Persia right, and Greece right, and Rome right, and divided Europe right, and we're living in that time of the world, the next kingdom mentioned is not just another kingdom. It's the kingdom of God himself. Is it possible that not only is God real and not only is his word accurate and trustworthy, but is it possible that he himself will set up the next great world empire? That we're living in the time of the toes, if you will. When the world is divided, Oh, this next technological breakthrough, or the next scientific thing, or the next financial thing, or the next political thing, or the next soci- psychological, sociological, whatever you name it, that's going to pull the world, but apparently it's going to stay divided, but then God's going to set up his kingdom. By the way, Jesus himself employed this stone. Matthew chapter 20, I'm sorry, Matthew uh, yeah, 21 Matthew chapter 21, look what Jesus says about himself. Matthew chapter 21, that's going to be page 957. Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is a marvel in our eyes. Verse 44, And whoever falls on this stone will be what? Broken. Broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's the same language as used for the stone that comes in and smashes the kings, kingdoms of the earth and says, that's the end of it, it's like powder. And Jesus says, that's me. I am that thing that's coming. I am the great King of kings and Lord of lords who will set up the one true everlasting kingdom. And it's going to happen in the time in which we're living. Let me take you to two texts as we close. John chapter 14 and verse 29. I'll get the four minutes back from you tomorrow night. John chapter 14 and verse 29. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his own soon coming events. His betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, and all the events of that final Passover weekend. And notice what Jesus says. Why did he tell them these things before it happened? Matthew, John chapter 14, verse 29. I'm sorry, Matthew. No, 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 14. Uh, John 14, I'm sorry. John fourteen twenty-nine. He says, And now I have told you, before it comes, for what purpose? That when it does come to pass. Don't you love the certainty of that? It doesn't say, so if it does happen to come true. He says, I'm telling you before it happens that when it does come to pass, you may what? Believe. The Bible tells us the future. Not so, ooh, we're the inside knowledge people. We know the future. We, we, we know how the whole thing's going to we know what's in the deck, we know what cards are coming up. It's not for that reason. It's because He wants you to believe that He exists, that His word is trustworthy and that you can have an actual relationship with him. It's not going to be like a bank. It's not going to foreclose on you. It's not going to be a relationship that's going to run away. He says, I'm going to demonstrate. And the, the biggest thing I can possibly do, notice this, fascinating enough, the evidence validating the existence of God and the trustworthiness of his word is the history of the world itself. He's like, go ask a non-believer. Tell them if it was Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece. Ask them. They'll verify for you that the things that I have said over the course of not just 10 years, 20 years, we're talking hundreds or even thousands of years. Remember, this was 500 years before Christ. We're living 2,500 years from then, and it's accurate right to this day. He says, if I can do that for the history of the world, can't you trust me with your life? Behold, I've told you these things before they come to pass, so that when it does... You may believe. Hebrews chapter 4, a final text. Hebrews chapter 4, page 1150, 1150. Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 12. This is what the Bible claims about itself, and watch carefully. For the Word of God is what? Living. This is a living document. It does something. It's active. Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Friends, the God who can see into the future can see into your heart. He only gives us this other evidence so that you can come into a trust relationship with Him. You can say, wow, There actually is a God. Objectively, logically, it's credible. I don't have to be a fool to believe. I'm not jumping out in the dark. It's the evidence of things not seen. He wants me to trust him. He says, come, let us reason together. And friends, as we go throughout these meetings, that's what I'm going to ask you to do. Simply that every night, come, let us, what's the word? Reason together and see what God's word says. There is a God, his word is trustworthy, and he has a plan for you as an individual. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, yes, you are the only God, not just a better God or the one we happen to believe in, the only God, and you've given us objective evidence to, cre- to make valid those claims, to, to verify that credibility. And Lord, we not only see that your word is true, but we happen to be living in the time of the toes, as the prophecy tells us. Lord, we've seen Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and divided Rome come and go, and we're living in this very time, and apparently the very next kingdom is yours to come. Lord, help us to not just see that as some sort of interesting, spiritual, trivial pursuit, but as a living, breathing reality that we could very well see Jesus face to face in our lifetime. Lord, help us to think about the seriousness of that and help us to learn to love you not out of fear, but because you've demonstrated that you're trustworthy. You'll never let us down and we can build a life on your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org